ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Frank here, he's got his own billiard room. Yes, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, what do you call it, Kramer? The billiard room. No. <laughs> the name. The billiard Not billiard. Not the billiards. It was... Come on, Rudy. Come on. It, we call it the, uh, the place to be. The place to be. Yes, it's the place to be. Then I shall be there. Our next event of the evening is a one-fall match. Now, it's time. Live and in living color. With a 60-minute time limit. Randy Man can with a big boys play. Time to play the game. This is where the big boys play, huh? Why do I want this? Yeah, because I want to make bank, bro. I want to get ass. I want to drive a Range Rover. This is where the big boys play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it is now time for the Place to Be podcast. And now your hosts. Justin Rosero and Scott Criscolo with a big boys play. This is Justin Rosero alongside my good friend El Guiante, and you are joining us here. Combo show where the big boys play the place to be podcast. We're reviewing Starcade 1988. Here's part two. Very nice, Mr. Rosero. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Giante. Um, just before we go into this match, now, Oliver Humperdinck, a face manager, a guy I've never liked. Does anybody here like Oliver Humperdinck? I do not. Seemed like a nice guy. Felt bad when he passed away. Uh, seemed like he had a lot of dedicated fans, but I never really got the appeal of, of Hump. Yeah, it's unusual uh, this evening that we've had two babyface managers now uh, on the card. You don't see many of those. Um, so Barry Windham is obviously with J.J. Dillon. He's the U.S. champion. And I thought this was a very weird-looking match on the card for some reason. It's just not two guys you'd imagine would have a match together at this point. Um, and it's kind of random to see uh, Bigelow crop up here. I don't know why I feel that, but it just seems a bit odd. Um, so uh, Bigelow goes for um, uh, he well Bigelow basically gets the better of the early going uh, in the shine sequence. Uh, we get a big back suplex from Windham, uh, which is no sold by Bam Bam. Um, he does a weird kind of little dance move. Uh, now I have to admit I never really got Bigelow as a face um, too much. I, I think I prefer him as a as a monster heel. Um, we get a big shoulder tackle from. Uh, Bigelow, Gorilla Slam by uh, by him, five punches in the corner, drop kick, a savat kick, a suplex, Wyndham uh, fights back, uh, Bigelow takes a tumble, hits his knee, uh, I think Jim Ross uh, talks about how big men tend to have, uh, you know, knee problems. We get a big splash over the top rope uh, from Bam Bam for two, Gorilla Slam, uh, Atomic uh, Splash, from the top misses um Wyndham with some uh uh he well he comes back basically and then he hits a uh, a flying lariat um we get a beta back suplex 
uh, five punches, uh, drop kick. He posts Bigelow now. We get the claw, uh, slam. Uh, he misses an elbow from the top. Bam Bam comes back. Both men fall outside. We get an atomic drop on, on Wyndham, who then posts Bam Bam again, uh, who is counted out. So we get a count outside the ring, and Wyndham retains. A reasonably good match, I thought. Um, and uh, Scott, I'll go with you first this time. Well, th this match right now, you're dealing with two of my favorite guys of all time. Uh, obviously, as JR mentioned, uh, we are huge Bigelow fans. And uh, I am a gigantic uh, Barry Wyndham fan. I've been for a very long time. So it was nice to see him with the U.S. heavyweight title, which is also one of my favorite belts of that era. So everything worked here. Um, obviously now he's solo with JJ because technically there is, uh, at the moment, there is no more horsemen. Um, but uh, I, I really like this match. I thought it could have been a little bit better. Um, and most of this match was Wyndham stalling and then Bigelow beating him down with a power moves. He put a pretty nice drop kick, but Wyndham did a lot of walking around too. Um, Ross and Caudle did a good job here, though. They broke they, they, they break the match down to the common denominators uh, they really make it easy for like a maybe a new TV audience to to uh, to process it, uh, and you know being a mark for the claw, which is also one of my favorite moves. I know a lot of people hate the claw. Uh, <laughs> Wyndham's US title. I loved U.S. Uh, Wyndham's U.S. title because he always used it and it got a rise out of the crowd. So I always enjoyed that. Um, he lifted Bigelow up and slammed him, which I thought was pretty impressive because I thought Wyndham was never really a, a strong guy. Obviously, much more trim wrestler than he would be a, a, a strong wrestler. Um, Bigelow gets gets smacked uh, with a post, and uh, obviously uh, uh, the, the ending was pretty weak. I was expecting more. I thought if you're gonna have Wind, if you're gonna have a Wyndham win, uh, at least pin him, uh, you would think Bigelow would win by countout and continue the feud. Maybe they weren't planning to, but uh, this was the opposite of. Well, no, this is the same as pretty much every other match on this show. A really good action in the middle. Hey, there's the big claw, and uh, and a really kind of shoddy ending. Um, which, again, I don't think was Dusty's forte, and I think this, this card showed it for the most part, and this was another example of that. Justin? Uh, yeah, I liked it, no surprise, there with Bigelow. But, uh, and they, have, they, they must have big plans, Parv. I don't know if you have anything there from Meltzer, or maybe they're coming up in the future, observers, from that time, <clears throat> what the plans were for Bigelow, because they, they kept him really strong here. Uh, he beats uh, Wyndham around for a while early on, and then, even when um, he's getting beaten down, he makes a lot of comeback attempts, and even uh, he has a visual pin where he basically pins him and picks him up early on. And uh, It seemed like they went out of their way to not beat Bigelow, and by having him lose by countout, it continues that. I think the story of the match was, was pretty obvious. It was that Wyndham was just trying to escape this thing with his title intact, win or not. Uh, he saw Bigelow as a threat and, and just wanted to get out of there with the belt, and, and that's what he does. So I, I thought that finished the story well. I don't, I don't know if we needed a clean finish here. I, I think it was okay. Um, because, like I said, I, I think the the point was to keep Bigelow strong. Chad, I was uh, kind of disappointed in this. Um, I thought that the story was okay, but it kind of felt like they never got into second gear. And I don't know when Bigelow actually left the NWA, but uh, this will be the last time we'll see him on one of the shows we do until 1998. Uh, so he kind of comes in for a brief appearance, and then is right back out. Um, I, I do like Barry Wyndham a good bit, uh, especially in the last couple of shows we've reviewed. But in this match, he did a couple of things that sort of annoyed me. And uh, one of them was he was getting some uh, cheers, a good bit of cheers from the crowd. 
and he kept kind of mugging for the fans. After he would do a move, he'd look around and kind of present the four horsemen signal to the fans, which would just get them to cheer more, uh, which as a heel, I kind of don't like that, that it was almost like he was encouraging the people in the crowd that were cheering for him to, uh, to cheer him louder. He wasn't, you know, kind of jabbing with them back and forth to kind of uh, not encourage them to cheer him. Uh, and I thought the finish was kind of weak too. So overall, I was I was really looking forward to this match uh, coming in, and I thought it was all right, but I was kind of disappointed in it also. Yeah, and I did notice that Wyndham did the uh, did the five punches in the turnbuckle, which is usually a face spot. Don't see too many heels do that. Um, yeah, uh, I I don't have too much to it to to add to 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 that. Um, I, I, I did, did, did you guys know what I mean, that this is a really weird-looking match? And I think it's because you just don't associate with Bam Bam in being in this uh, NWA late ACs context. And if, if this is the only time we see him, I guess that's why it, it looks weird. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's in so briefly, and then uh, right back again. That I mean, if, if you ask me to associate Bam Bam with WCW, I think about, like, the Jersey Triad, Hardcore... Uh, era in late WCW, so it was kind of weird and out of context to see him here. He he is one of those guys who never really stuck in one place for long, wasn't he? Never really has a long run anywhere. Yeah, I think he felt they got kind of hosed in Dota F in '87. Um, I think he was a young guy that got a push way too fast and and thought he deserved more and and being kind of you know and then there's stories that Hogan kind of buried him a little bit. Um, so he left, comes here, and I believe he got an offer from Japan, and that's where he heads off to and. 89, so I think that's why he's uh, only in here briefly. Probably got a better offer to go overseas. Do you uh, but I don't really associate him at all with... Uh, it, to me, it's amazing when you look through Starcade results that he's even in a Starcade title match. So. Do, do you uh, prefer him as a face or a heel? Heel, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think probably my favorite period of uh, his is when he's with um, Loon of Sean, you know, that kind of era. Uh that's definitely where I started to get to know him and became a fan of him. So that's, I thought his feud with, you know, kind of mini feud with Brett in 93 was great. And then, you know, I think the Doink stuff, while it was entertaining in its own way, I, to me that really dragged down that run for him. Uh, I feel like he was kind of set up for better things, and then he got kind of roped into that feud, and that killed him for a while. Um, and he didn't really recover too much until he joined up with DiBiase. So um, I thought a little bit of his run was wasted at that point. But to me, 93 was a, a great year for him. <clears throat> yeah, so Magnum TA now is with uh, the TV champ uh, Rick Steiner. I've noticed they've given this uh, Rick Steiner varsity clip. That's almost like the featured feud of this card, which is a bit weird. Like, I th- thought we could have done with a bit more, maybe, Flair Luger build, rather than going back to varsity club Rick Steiner stuff all the time. Um, but anyway, he's with uh, Magnum TA is with Rick Steiner, and. Um, Steiner seems surprised that he will now have to defend the title, but he's ready for take on people anyway. So our next match, Sting and Dusty Rose versus the Row Warriors as heels. Um, as uh, Capetta's doing the uh, announcing here, I noticed that uh, he says that Dusty Rhodes is £287, which I think is, is that the same or slightly down on last time? I can't remember. I think uh, down a couple of... Uh just a couple of pounds, but still, from his uh, from his weight calls throughout the year, he's gained thirty pounds throughout the year. So. 
Yeah, he was being uh, billed as like two hundred and sixty-eight pounds at the start of the year, which is just ridiculous. <laughs> the Sapphire WrestleMania six, which is like you know one hundred and fifty pounds or whatever. Yeah, that, that's that's one of my favorite Jesse Ventura calls when he starts questioning that. <laughs> uh, Five fifty, I can see, but not four fifty. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the face is clear. House. Uh. uh Gary. Uh, Michael Capetta is still in the ring, and he kind of looks awkward there, because there's some action going on around him. Um, Sting and Animal start out. We get a drop kick uh, from Sting, an armbar. Dusty comes in with, with a bionic elbow. Uh, Hawk gets on uh, top. Uh, sorry, Hawk gets on top with a series of stomps on Sting. Uh, what else happens in this match? Um, Sting comes back with lefts and rights. We get a power slam. A very high elbow drop from Sting. Animal comes in. Gorilla Slam. Uh, I know it's the JR is still calling this the military press tonight. Uh, we get a hot shot by Sting with a clothesline to the outside. Uh, body press from the top all the way out to the outside. Dusty takes over. Uh, he rams Animal's uh, legs into the post. Uh, we get a tag to Hawk. Test of strength, but Dusty kicks in before it can get going. Uh, and the commentators praise the veteran's wiliness. Um, he goes for the figure four, which isn't happening. Um, action goes back outside. Hawk targets uh, the eye um, and does some uh, qu- quite vicious-looking stomps on Dusty there. Uh, goes back inside. Dusty does a drop kick. Um, we get right hands, which are met with uh, jive power and the drop kick again from Dusty. Uh, we get an uh, animal comes in. Uh, who rakes at Dusty's uh, face uh, and gets him in a neck vice. You get a sleeper by Hawk, which is broken very quickly. A hot tag to Sting, who unloads an animal. Sting a splash, Scorpion Deathlock. Hawk breaks it. Uh, uh, the Warriors double team Dusty now. Um, Sting uh, goes from the top on Animal, uh, which gets one, two. But Paul Ellering pull, pulls Tommy Young out of the ring for a DQ. So. The faces win, but the Warriors retain their belts. Chad? Um, I mean, I thought this was pretty good for what it was. Uh, Certainly not exactly a satisfying finish, but uh, I liked the match a pretty good bit, actually, and I thought the work that the Road Warriors did on Dusty's eye uh, when Hawk drags Dusty to the floor by the eye was really vicious. And uh, I think the Road Warriors are kind of getting a little stale. Um, I do like their heel turn. Uh, kind of, they seem to be revitalized and uh, rejuvenated by the heel turn and doing a lot of kind of vicious work. And I thought Sting looked good. He'd had a couple of kind of sporadic appearances in the past few shows we've done. Here I thought he stayed pretty focused and on point and looked good too. So, I mean, the finish is crappy, but uh, I mean, the match was pretty long, but to me it kind of flew by and felt really quick, so I enjoyed this. Justin? Yeah, it was fine. I kind of see this as a passing of the torch match from Dusty to Sting. Uh, It's almost like, reminds me a lot of like Royal Rumble 91 when Dusty's kind of being phased out, and he's here, but he's not really used that great, and you can tell a lot of the focus is on Sting, and um, and in a way you kind of associate them, they've been friendly throughout Sting's run. Um, but this to me is just kind of, okay, here's our old, you know, torchbearer, and here's the young guy that's going to take it from him. And I, I enjoy the Road Warriors heel turn as well. Uh, but even they feel a, a bit played out with, with NWA at this point. And I, I think at 89 Dawns, they really needed 
um, to clean some house, and it's already started to happen and, and get some fresh blood in there. And um, to me, Dusty and the Road Warriors were uh, just pillars of the old NWA, and I think they needed to, to start fleshing guys out. Um, and, and Sting was should be start to be positioned as, as one of the top guys. Scott? I always was annoyed that uh, Dusty wasn't wearing white tights. Why did he have to ruin the whole uh, color feng shui of this match, you know? <laughs> the wearing black. They were the heel. Uh, Sting was the white knight wearing white, and Dusty had to ruin everything by wearing black as well. So what was Dusty going to turn heel or something? I don't know. You know, That's the way Dusty thinks. I'm wearing black hat, baby, so I'm going to turn heel. Um, uh, obviously, if you li- if for those that listen to uh, our show as well, everyone knows uh, how huge uh, Road Warriors fans I am. Uh I, I like the match. I like any World Warrior match. I don't care. Uh, even even 97 when they were really out of it. Um, so I, I enjoy this match anyway. Um, but as Justin said, and you guys are saying, the, the Road Warriors are days, as well as Dusty's days here, are numbered. And you can tell. It's almost like Sting is just carrying these guys to get through it. Obviously, the Road Warriors stick around for a little while longer than Dusty does. But um, you can clearly tell this is a stage for... Uh, for um, Sting to be put over. Uh, so, uh, you know, going back to the, obviously the the uh, the draw at the first clash. I mean, this is pretty much Sting is being positioned as the guy, and and I'm sure it was I'm sure it was difficult for Magnum TA to look at because I think a lot of people realized that should have been him. Um, and so I bet you it's kind of tough for him to watch. Although he he would have gotten pushed probably a lot earlier than this. Um, I think the rumor was he was going to win the title at Starcade '86. I think, but. Um, yeah, this is pretty much a showcase for Sting, and the other three guys are just kind of, you know, picking up the, the slack. You could tell them having Dusty kind of be the face in peril here in the segment, and Sting uh, being the guy that, um, you know, gets the big pop at the end coming in. Yeah, and uh, one of the uh, things that occurred to me during this match was that um, the Royal Warriors have been in the NWA for quite some time, and yet this is their, they didn't get their world title run until they turned heel. Um, so it's like they they didn't give them the title run when they were hot and over and you know really kind of white hot and everybody loved them in you know I referenced that match in Chicago from uh, when, when was that eighty seven um, they actually waited and then you know the, until they'd gone a bit stale and then they turned heel and then they gave them the belt so it's kind of uh, I don't know I I just think it's a um, kind of epitomizes some of the Crockett style booking. Um, you know, if uh, the if this had been WF, the Warriors would have been uh, tag champs, um, or the, the, at least they would have uh, exchanged belts back and forth with Arn and Tully, maybe throughout '87. Would you guys agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Vince Vince never let the iron get too cold when he came to bringing in hot face tag teams. Uh, once they came in, he gave them some time to you know, build their cred, build their fan base, and then immediately made them, you know, the number one contenders, and they won the title. So, definitely much faster pace than uh, than the Crockett's did. Yeah, I, I, I also, like, in the back of my mind, I thought that maybe the uh, Royal Warriors were slightly reluctant heels, maybe. Um, I only say that because uh, if you're a heel, you have to kind of show a lot more weakness than you do as a face. And in, in my mind, in real life, the Royal Warriors are uh, those guys who kind of don't quite understand that wrestling isn't real. Like, they think that, like, they want to always look strong in any of their matches, which is why they don't always give their opponents a lot, or why they always want to... And I I thought it looked strained at the start of this match when Dusty and Sting were clearing house, and they kind of, like, 
had to bail and kind of beg off a little bit. Um, but they didn't show too much vulnerability. You know, they were still, you still got the impression that they could, you know, kick ass. It's just kind of weird. I, I, I don't know. I've, I'm so used to seeing the uh, Royal Warriors as dominant faces that to see them work as heels is something, I don't know, something a bit unusual about it. Uh, but I understand that this heel run doesn't last very long. I think by the time we get to uh, the next pay-per-views, they're already faces again, right? Uh, I, I don't know if it's the next one, but it's it's pretty sh- shortly thereafter if it isn't there. Um, and just a quick kind of to piggyback on what Scott was just saying, I actually watched uh, one of their first uh, appearances in WWF uh, last night in 1990 in July, and they were already challenging, you know, the winner of the Demolition Heart Foundation match. So they were already calling out people for a shot at the belts um, in one of their first appearances. On the Brother Love show. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, there is, there's a massive difference in booking philosophy, uh, but it's almost like you can't really be a champion for any amount of time unless you're a, uh, unless you're a heel team. You know, the, the Fantastics only won those US uh, tag belts a couple of weeks ago and they already dropped them again. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just uh, like, I understand why you'd book the NWA world champion like that. I don't understand why every single belt has to have a you know a heel champion, especially now as they're getting more and more into the TV you know TV booking rather than uh, like booking old live shows all the time. So yeah, this is this still a, an ongoing uh, issue, I think. Maybe we'll see a change of philosophy as uh, Dusty has less control, but I, I don't know. Um, so. The last thing we'll say is uh, Paul Ellering. Now we've been down on him on this show. If you're a big uh, Row Warriors fan, what do you think of uh, what do you think of him? Well, I've always been a Paul Ellering fan. Um, it's funny how all over the years his hairstyle changed and his hair color changed and his clothes changed, and he kind of he was always just very entertaining. But to me, he'll always be the handler, not even more manager, handler uh, of the Road Warriors. Um, I never had a problem with Paul Ellering. Never did. But what's he actually bringing? Like, because from what we've seen, he doesn't actually really seem to do a lot. He doesn't seem to bring a lot to, you know, even in the War Games matches where he's even in the ring and involved, he doesn't really seem to do a lot. I mean, what in your view is he actually bringing to the table as part of what? that Road Warriors package? Well, I know that uh, physically, I think he was injured, so I know he couldn't get into a lot of. Uh, I think that's why he had to retire and became a manager. I think he suffered, I don't know, if it was a back injury or a neck injury. So I know he couldn't really take a lot of physical bumps. Uh, so, no, he was not as active as other managers, but he just always seemed like the guy that could control the Road Warriors mentally. Not that they were, you know, stupid or anything, but, like, he could, you know, they listened to him, whereas otherwise they were just crazed lunatics. And, um, I don't know, there was, something, there was just something special about being that kind of manager where you didn't have to get involved a lot. And that you actually handled your your team, your clients, and I, that's to me that seems how Paul Ellering handled the uh, handled the Road Warriors. Uh, um, mm. A guy like Dylan who took bumps, or a guy like a uh, Paul Jones that took bumps. You know, he was a little different in that aspect. Mm. Yeah, that, I'm I'm still dubious. I have to say, um, I, I I always think that uh, I mean that there's a problem with being a face manager, right? But even a like a heel manager who can't take bumps is, uh, I'd say maybe half as effective as a as a heel manager who can take bumps. 
Um, did, I, I'm, uh, you know, Ted DiBiase is one of my favourite wrestlers. Um, but I, I'm always down on his run as a manager because he couldn't take bumps because he was injured. So there was never any blow-off to any of those feuds because he could never take the bump. Whereas, you know, a, a Bobby Heenan or a J.J. Dillon, they can, uh, or a Jim Cornette, for example, they can, you know, have that moment where finally the face manages to get their hands on them. Um, well, I guess with Paul Ellering, he's a face in the first place, so a lot of the time that's not going to happen. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not... Uh, d d Chad, did you see anything in this match that changed your mind on him? Um, I mean, not really. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So g going into the uh, the main event now, it's uh, it's Ric Flair, world champion, versus Lex Luger. Uh, the stipulation for this match is that Flair can lose the title on a DQ. Uh, there's a sign uh, in the crowd that says Ric Flair is the total champion. Lex Loser, give it up. Um, so, a quite witty sign there. We're told that Luthez is in attendance and we get a shot of him uh, in the crowd. Um, they uh, they note that um, uh, as this uh, match starts, uh, they note that Lex Luger has dropped quite a few pounds uh, to get into shape for this match. He's down to 262 pounds and he does look quite a bit smaller than he usually does. Yeah, he's still very toned and muscly, but he's he's definitely smaller than the the usual Lex Luger. Uh, Flair uh, taunts Luger to start and struts struts around the ring, um, and uh, th th this is quite a long match, guys. So uh, d do feel free to interrupt me whenever you want. Um, they lock up. Uh, they lock up, and Flair gets um, uh, basically the action goes to the outside. Uh, Ross says that Luger's uh, counter-wrestling has really improved um, over the past few months, and uh, I tend to agree with him. Uh, we get an absolute shitload of uh, college and football info about Luger now uh, from Ross, um, which it seems to me is his favourite subject on earth. Um, we, get, we get a reference uh, again now to the, NWE, uh, the NWA Referee of the Year, Tommy Young, um, and uh, it, this is something, last show he was talking about, six-time referee of the year, Tommy Young. Do you guys happen to know who's giving out these awards? Is this just something that Ross has made up? <laughs> oh, the way the NWA used to work, uh, you know, it's like Pat Patterson winning the IC title in Rio. I mean, they probably kind of, you know, winged it as they went, so you never know. Maybe it was a Mid-South thing, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, and the, I just just on this uh, Luger's college background, which is you know Ross really really goes on about this and uh, continues to do so over the next few years. Um, who do you think uh, Jim Ross would rather sleep with, Lex Luger or Steve Williams? Oh, I think easily Steve Williams. I'd say a threesome. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, we get some. Uh, uh, flare chops now, uh, power slam by uh, Luger, uh, gorilla slam. We get chop. Uh, flare begs off. Luger follows him outside uh, and around the ring. We get an Irish whip into the turnbuckle and a fair flop. A hammerlock from Luger, an arm drag. Uh, flare goes to the eyes. Uh, we get four or five uh, reverse knife edges now, but Luger is having none of it. Uh, he posts Flare to the outside. Uh, Luger is doing a lot of posing and hocking up in this match. We get some crisscrossing and a, a clothesline by Luger. 
Uh, we get a suplex by Luger, um, but uh, and then a high elbow drop that misses. Uh, he hits his arm doing that. Uh, Flair takes it outside. Uh, he turns he turns up the intensity of this part in the match. T uh, Tommy Young is pissed off and uh, tells him to keep it in the ring. We get a snapmare, a knee drop, uh, big reverse knife edge, another snapmare. Uh, he jumps on uh, Luger's uh, chest. We get another snapmare. Luger comes back with a sleeper now. Uh, back suplex from Flair to counter that. Um, he goes for the figure four, which is reversed into an inside cradle. Gets two. Uh, Flair goes uh, goes up to the top. A superplex from Luger now. Um, we get two count only. Luger gets uh, the figure four on. Um, he's hammering on Flair now. Uh, but he accidentally tom uh, elbows Tommy Young in the process. He throws Luger over the top. Uh, Luger gets a pin, but Young is still uh, down on the apron. The commentators count to five or six uh, in the process. Uh, Dylan comes up on the apron. Luger is uh, still on top for the next uh, part of the match. We get another suplex from him, a gorilla slam. Flair grabs a chair uh, and uh, basically nails Luger's leg. Um, as Dylan is distracting uh, Tommy Young, and you can really hear the, hear the kind of uh, metal uh, clash against his knee there. Jim Ross goes on about this quite a bit. Flair targets the injured knee now. We get the figure four from him, which is reversed. Uh, Flair breaks it. A snapmare and another knee drop from him uh, across the leg. Flair goes to the top, uh, but he's caught and slammed. Luger starts hulking up. We get a gorilla slam from him, flying forearm. Uh, from Flair, which uh, bounces off Lugo, and th that's quite funny actually. You get this uh, odd flying forearm from Flair, and he bounces off him as if he's made of uh, sponge or something. Um, Lugo no sells it. Uh, we get a clothesline, a two count, uh, power slam from Lugo. Um, Lugo is limp limping around the ring, uh, but he's still posing quite a bit as well. Torture rack from Lugo now, but Lugo's leg buckles from under him. Flair gets the pin there and then uh, with a three count. And uh, wow, that's a relatively clean win for Ric Flair. Chad, what do you think of this one? Uh, I like this uh, quite a bit. I thought this was a very good, uh, great match even. Uh, it really made, I mean, Luger, you can argue whether Luger should have won the belt here. Uh, but even though he obviously didn't in the end, they did still try to make him look really strong throughout the match. Uh, he dominated probably 80, 85% of this match. Really had flair reeling, um, and on the ropes. Uh, he did some good work and, uh, flair kinda added in a couple of small little things that you don't see much, like his running forearm. Uh, at one point he did a kind of vicious double stomp, uh, which is something that, I don't really remember seeing too much from Flair. No. Uh, and then and then I thought the match really uh got amazing once uh the chair spot with the with the leg happened because Flair was just vicious. Uh the camera angles really captured Flair dropping knees right onto Luger's leg. Uh, and that looked really great and I like the finish uh relatively clean by Flair, but it kind of played into the whole thing where Luger has these power moves and uh, he was able to overcompensate uh, and kind of will his way through all of them. But finally, when he got Flair up in the rack, his uh, leg buckled and Flair was able to pin him. So I thought that was a very smart finish 
Uh, that kind of made both guys look pretty strong. Scott, is uh, is 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 Justin uh, still gone? Yeah, yeah, he he had to exit stage left briefly. Uh, uh, his little tag team partner uh, uh, had a fit backstage, so he's he's taking care of that. But uh, um, this uh, again, just like uh, the Road Warriors, no one's a bigger Ric Flair mark than me, um, as as well documented on our on our show. Um, the one thing that always pissed me off about Lex Luger, and we've heard this from a lot of people and a lot of guests we've had that have worked with him. Um, he never looked like he actually cared about the, the, the importance of the show. To him, it was just a paycheck. Here I am, big jacked up dude, I look good, I'm going to wrestle some guy who wears a robe and has a belt. That's what it always looked like with Lex Luger. Um, every other guy, it didn't matter whether it was Nikita Koloff or, or Road Warrior Hawk or any of the other singles guys that Flair has wrestled um, in the pay-per-view era, which for me started at Starcade 83, at least for NBA. Um Yes, this match had a big match feel, but Luger always looked like, yeah, I'm here, I'm getting a big payday for this, and uh, I'm going to you know, just kind of go through the motions and maybe I'll win. Uh, and that always annoyed me about him. And I remember, and I know there's stories about Barry Windham saying that training the guy was like trying to train a sponge uh, <laughs> or a donut. Um, it just wasn't happening. And that's another reason why I love Ric Flair so much. Because here's a guy who could literally take anybody, anybody, I mean, guys, he got he got three star. I mean, he got three star match at Bunkhouse Stampede, which is a horrendous mess in itself. Uh, out of Road Warrior Hawk, Road Warrior Hawk, we're talking about here, you know. And and here's a guy like Lex Luger who was had a million dollar body, but about fifteen cents worth of ability. And the match at the Bash was pretty good. Um. Of course, the highlight of that was the beginning of that show. If I remember correctly, guys, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're a little more up, uh, up at the moment than I am on it. It was the beginning of the bash, right, when um, Luger was coming out of the limo, and then the horseman came and beat the crap out of him, and ripped off that bad uh, uh, pink uh, prom tuxedo and yeah. the jacket. Was that the beginning of the bash? I'm pretty no, sure no, it was, it's, right? It's a was, uh, Clash of Champions. Yeah, Clash 2. Um, they, they show it at the very beginning of the Great American Bash show. Uh, but that beatdown was Clash of the Champions too, where uh, he pulls up, and then the Horsemen beat him all down in their tuxes. Yeah, that was in that was down in Miami, I think, right? Yep, correct. That's what I thought. Okay, so, um, but the Bash match was solid, but you knew that was going to end in a schmoz because they had a lot of they had a lot of uh, um, you know, a lot of steam. This feud could go. Uh, the match itself, I don't dislike. Uh, I actually, this is one of the few uh, on our on our message board uh, when Justin and I did this review. This is one of the few uh, matches that Justin uh, Flair matches that Justin actually grades higher than I do, um, and that, that says a lot because I give I give every Flair match a four, even if it's you know against Dink, <laughs> it wouldn't matter. <clears throat> Excuse me, but uh, this was one of the few times where the ending actually was pretty slick. Um, it's funny how they really wanted to push Luger as much as they did, yet never really wanted to turn the turn the page with him. Um, as I mentioned, uh, when Magnum TA was healthy and he was on the rise in 85, 86, and probably the guy that was going to win the title, they were had no problem giving him the belt. But it seemed like every babyface after Magnum TA, they still were a little tentative about. Even Sting probably at the beginning. And then obviously they would... Uh, that would happen in 90. Uh, one guy, uh, Parv, that you didn't mention, 
probably because they wanted to keep it a secret. All those guys that you mentioned uh, in the uh, that Meltzer mentioned that were mm. coming into the NWA at the end of '88, beginning of '89. Of course, one name you I'm pretty sure you did not mention. No. The one they wanted to keep a secret, and that was, of course, uh, Ricky Steamboat, uh, because that was the one that, of course, was going to uh, dictate the first six months of 1989 with a trinity of unbelievable matches. But you guys, of course, will get there. I don't want to. I don't want to. <laughs> overall, though, uh, enough of my bloviating. Uh, the match overall is very good uh, because it's Flair, and he just makes everything very good. So, um, kudos to Flair. I'm glad he won clean, and and Luger could go stick it. No, 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 I don't want to uh, create an argument here, but uh, Chad, you've been reasonably high on Luger in recent times. Uh, would you uh, take any issue with any of what Scott was saying there about him, you know, not giving a shit and not having much ability, etc.? Well, I mean, I think Luger has had some ups and downs in what we've seen, uh, but I, I do, I do think Luger. Uh, watching these shows again, rewatching these recently, I do think that he kind of was able to put together matches better and actually uh, kind of work the style better uh, than sometimes he gets credit for. Uh, but that's that's a personal preference thing. Um, but I do think he was able to kind of. Uh, I mean, I thought I thought at the bash match he did a pretty good job. I thought, in some ways, I don't know if I preferred his performance in the bash match or this match. He did some stuff in this match that annoyed me, uh, but I do think when it got to the key moment of the match with the leg selling, he did a real good job with that. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm always going to be kind of annoyed when Flair chops somebody and they just like walk through that. Uh, which Luger did a lot of that, where he did the kind of hulking up and did the pose after Flair chopped him. But uh, with his leg selling, I thought was really good. And uh, I guess we'll see if we progress. I mean, I've, I've always known that I've liked Luger more than most. So I think that's just a preference of mine. Yeah, I mean, I'm also probably higher on Luger than most people. Um, it, it's just that I don't, I mean, to an extent, I don't see how, um, for me, if you said, who gives less of a shit about their opponent, Luger or Road Warrior Hawk, who you mentioned, I'd always say that Luger seems like he cares more, because Road Warrior Hawk just seems like an arsehole to me. Like, he, he's a guy who can properly, when he's not in the, when he's not in the right mood, he can start no-selling stuff. Um, you know, I think Luger plays a role. Um, I, one of the weird things about him is that I've always thought that he's, probably more effective as a heel than as a face, which sounds like a counterintuitive thing to say. But I don't like... I don't think he's particularly good at the hulking up and the posing. Um, and I think that it's because he may have a bit of natural arrogance to him. So, to me, he worked better when he was... Um, when he was a when he was a heel, and so that people could, you know, pick up on that natural arrogance of his and boo him for it. Um I- would, okay. Would, would you right, disagree? And then I got a, a, a piggyback on that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish your point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, to me, he never just he d- doesn't come across particularly naturally doing this kind of you know young lion shtick that he's doing here uh, in this match. And he did it a lot. Uh, a lot of this kind of shouting and hulking up and stuff. Um, like to me, you know, obviously the master of that of the Hulk up is Hulk Hogan. Um, and 
he, for some reason, is a guy who can get people to cheer him when he does that. Whereas with Luger, I don't know. It's something not working there. Go ahead. I will say this. Uh, I, I will say this. I think the problem that Luger had at this moment, I just think he was too immature. I don't think he could wrap his head around what he was being handed. When we mm-hmm. get into, when you guys get into 89, I'll be very much looking forward to when you cover uh, those clashes and those shows when he became U.S. champion and we move ahead with him. I think then he started to maybe figure it out. But by then, his ability was never there to begin with. Um, and I don't think it ever really improved, per se. Mm-hmm. But I will say that, that as time progressed, I think Luger kind of started to wrap his head around what he was attaining. I think here, he was just so young and so immature. I mean, he was what? I mean, imagine being 24 years old. I, I don't remember what year Luger was born. I'm pretty sure he was like 24, 25 here. Imagine being 25 years old, and you're on the biggest stage of the world next to WrestleMania, facing arguably the greatest wrestler ever to put on a pair of boots for the World Heavyweight Championship. I, I don't even know if I could wrap my head around that at 24 years old. Mm. And, and I don't know if he was quite ready for it yet. I, I really do think that you have to go back to Magnum TA's accident to realize that on the babyface side of things down there, I think everything was just thrown into whack. And I don't know if Luger was even supposed to be in this role yet when they first, uh, when they were thinking about him. Um, but I think they realized that after Magnum got hurt and he was done, that they kind of had to, um, kind of had to readjust things and, and kind of re- reset things. And I don't quite know if, Luger was supposed to be in this role at that time, but they took advantage of, you know, guy again, great-looking body, unbelievable physique. Uh, you know, ladies loved him, so it was natural to fit him in there. I just don't think... He, I think he was just a little too immature to wrap his head around what he was what he was uh, in, in front of him. And by 89-90, when he had the nice long U.S. title reign, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and again, you guys will obviously uh, expound on that uh, when you get to those shows, uh, I think then he started to realize, all right, I kind of know what's going on now. I think I can... And then he was a little bit he was a little bit easier to 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 watch in terms of big matches. But I think here um, it was more immaturity than anything else. I don't know what you guys think about that, but that's kind of where I think that's kind of where I come from at this level of his career. Any thoughts, Chad? You, you've seen quite a lot of his nineteen ninety stuff. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think uh, I mean I will say going into this, I've watched this uh, match and show a few times before. And going into this, I thought that this was their best match uh, together, him and versus Flair. But after watching uh, the 1990 stuff, I definitely think their Wrestle War match uh, kind of blows this one away. And uh, I do think, actually, Luger's performance in Capital Combat 1990, even though you had the bullshit with RoboCop and El Gigante and all that, uh that you did have uh, a good performance, kind of a gutsy performance by Luger because he was uh, legit in the hospital the day of the show, um, and he came out and gave a good performance there. So I'd agree that he definitely matured from what we see here, uh, put it more together in 89, and then in 90 he was pretty polished in many instances. Um, Meltzer goes four and a half on this. Where, mm-hmm. where would you go, uh, Chad? Um, I, w- I would put it right at four stars if I was given star ratings. Um, I thought it was great. I mean, I don't think the match... I, th- I think they definitely were able to convey what they wanted in the match. I don't... 
I mean, a lot of times I have uh, trouble with matches like this that's structured this way because, like I said, Luger of the 30 minutes of this match, Luger was on top and on offense for probably 25 minutes of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't get a real sense of peril or uh, struggle from Luger until the chair spot happens. Uh, but I thought it was a really good, almost great match. So I'd probably go four stars. Yeah, I mean, my major complaint with that is the same complaint I had with Sting earlier in the year. Is that I still don't think that Luger has got enough in his offensive locker to carry a 30-minute match. Um, in terms of actual moves that he can do. So we see quite a lot of repeated spots, you know. He goes to the Gorilla Slam three different times because he doesn't have anything else to do. He does the Power Slam twice. Two su- two or three suplexes, I think we get from him. It's like he doesn't have um, enough in his arsenal to uh, keep it varied enough for, you know, as you mentioned, a 25-minute stretch sequence on on the champion. Um, so, you know, the match takes off a little bit too late in the day from that chair spot onwards uh, for me to give it, you know, a 4.5 rating. Um, so yeah, I, I was a little bit disappointed with this because uh, this is one of the matches that you hear talked about quite a lot. Um, you know, as evidence of uh, that you know Luger actually not being not being that bad. But um, d- yeah, in some ways, I didn't think that this had too much to recommend over the first Flair Luger match. To be honest, apart from the finish, I really thought the finish was smart, um, and it was nice to see Ric Flair get a proper win that didn't make him seem like a chump. You know. Um, yeah, and uh, th- there's actually a bit more of this. I got another like 10 minutes of uh, interviews and things at the end of this tape. Um, Magnum TA has an interview with Flair, um, which he talks about his philosophy, which is to win at all costs. Doesn't matter, you know, what rules he breaks, etc. Um, and then he says that uh, Luger will never wrestle him again for the world title. That was his last shot. <laughs> he says that Luger is history. And uh, I quite like uh, what a dick Flair is in that section. I I think uh, I think that interview with Flair was actually kind of clever in that I mean Flair won relatively clean, but he obviously had his uh, feet on the ropes in this match. Yeah. So I mean I kind of took that uh, Flair saying no matter what uh, Luger would never challenge for the belt again. As a kind of clever way that NWA had uh, kind of deflected the heat off from Flair versus Luger and uh, projected it onto Flair versus Steamboat, to where when Steamboat came in, uh, you as the viewer didn't really feel like, oh well, Luger still has unfinished business with Flair. Uh, it was kind of clever the way they did that, and also uh, I don't know if you got this part, but the audio was kind of a mess during this whole sequence too, so you had. Uh, Gary Michael Capetta announced to the live crowd that a bunkhouse stampede <laughs> yeah. match I hear was that, about yeah. to take place. Uh, <laughs> which that seems kind of weird, too, that they had kind of a dark match main event. Apparently, JYD won that. Oh, God. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. It, Meltzer does mention this uh, dark match that takes place. It's just JYD and a bunch of jobbers, basically. And uh, I guess it's um, probably like written into his contract or something that he has to go over at some point. Um, uh, Chivani talks about um, Flair as being the greatest NWA champion ever, and Jim Ross mentions it a few times on commentary as well. Um, And I can see now how the promotion itself is starting to um, turn this 
uh, you know, Flair is the greatest champion ever into a promotional tool. Which is why I thought the finish of this match was particularly clever. Um, you know, it showed Flair, um, you know, getting away with a win just through being a superior tactician and a better wrestler than Luger, even though Luger got the better of most of the match. You know, Flair still got away with the title. And I think that, I think that's pretty clever. If, if, if this is their strategy going into 89 now, to make a virtue of Flair's phenomenal championship reign as a selling point, um, that's quite clever. Any thoughts on that? I agree with you 100%. Uh, because, um, first off, Flair is the face of this promotion. I don't think there's any thought about it. Uh, and you're not going to get argument out of me otherwise. Um, and, again, it all goes back to booking philosophy. Uh, the WWF philosophy of booking, at least in the early years, was always um, heel has the belt for a short time because you're building to the baby face winning it, and then he actually wins it. Whereas the NWA's philosophy was keep the heel title on and bring the fans to the arena to see the bad guy lose, but then he kind of loses, but not really. And then you expect another crowd to come in. And the thing is, it never wavered. You thought you'd think to yourself after a while, um, oh God, Flair's going to, he's probably going to win again. I'm not going tonight. I'm not spending the 30 bucks or 40 bucks, whatever the ticket was. Um, that never happened down there. They would still show up, even though 90% of the time, the heel would still win. Like, you made this point perfectly clear, Parv, earlier on about the, the tag straps and and any of these other titles. Look at Wyndham, same thing. Uh, the only legit babyface happy win tonight was Rick Steiner. Uh, otherwise, uh, even at a big show like Starcade, which, let's be honest, is their WrestleMania, uh, Vince would never have had this many heels retain their titles, particularly in the main event. Never would have happened. So it's always, it, booking philosophy has never been the same north uh, as compared to south, if you will. If you will. Uh, and, um, and again, you're, when, when the face of your promotion is a bad guy, but a bad guy people like, and your champion, uh, very different than when the face of your promotion is a big time good guy like Hulk Hogan was at the time. So booking philosophy uh, also plays a big part in this, and you're exactly right, that they were really pumping clear to the moon, and the, the booking of this match and the ending of this match uh, makes the most sense uh, because of that reason. So I agree with you 100% on your, on your thinking on that, absolutely. I, the only thing I've never quite been able to get my head around, and maybe this is my kind of upbringing as a WF fan, you know, in that mindset, is how can you have the major draw of a promotion be a heel? How can you have a drawing heel? Um, I can understand the logic when it's a touring world champ, so where it's kind of your local hero versus your champion who comes in for one match. Uh, you know, so let's say you're in St. Louis or something, or let's say you're in uh, Memphis, and you're going to see Jerry Lawler go up against Ric Flair. Maybe you don't see Ric Flair week in, week out, but you've certainly heard of him as a big name, you know. Um, so you're going you're gonna to go and watch your local hero face um, the the world champ. I can understand that. What is more difficult to understand is why you'd buy a ticket for um, you know a heel world champion in 1988, for example. Can you explain that to me, anybody? Chad, you go ahead. You go first. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't. I mean, I I think in some ways with that. I mean, I, I think they really, it's kind of tough, but I would guess maybe in some ways they had more faith in Flair than anybody else. Uh, so, 
that's why, and, and even Barry Wyndham, I mean, uh, the crop of relatively younger guys, Barry Wyndham versus uh, Barry Wyndham, Luger, and Sting right now, I would say, you know, by a safe margin, Wyndham's the most polished of them. Uh, even when Wyndham faced Sting, uh, Wyndham kind of carried that match. So maybe just by that, now, you know, why they was on the hillside, I don't know. I mean, I do think Flair was somebody that I always would argue that would be a better heel than face. Yeah. Uh, but but watching some of his face runs lately in uh, late 93, early 94, before Hogan comes in, and uh, very early uh, 1990 before the Horsemen reform and turn on Sting, uh, he, he was a really great baby face as well. Uh, so I think they could have made a run for that, but uh, I don't know. Just chose not to. Some of that may have been dusty politics. It, it's it's just difficult for me to, to understand how you it, how you can base a promotion around a uh, a heel. Um, you know, it's like uh, people buy tickets for the pe- for the guys they root for, right? More than 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 to see a guy beat. Um, uh, but then. I don't know. I mean, if you think of all of the kind of like the territorial staples, they tend to be faces, right? Like JYD in Mid South or Lawler in Memphis, or uh, they tend to be baby faces. Is that not right? Or Hogan or Bruno Sammartino, for example? Well, I, I mean, I think uh, I mean WWF. I think definitely has always kind of worked with a big baby face on top. But, um, in the other territories, I think maybe before, they definitely have a big face like JYD. Uh, but I, I think in some ways they also need just a, a main feud. So, like in World Class, you had the Von Erics, but you also had the Freebirds to kind of counteract that. Mm-hmm. Um, and even looking through most of the Georgia wrestling history results, you kind of see that where it was really, I think, some ways the feuds that drew more than the, uh, the components on each side. So, okay. Well, just uh, just wrapping up then. I, I thought that this, um, sh- like my initial thought was this, was that this was one of the better shows that we've seen. That this is actually a pretty solid card up and down. But having been through it now, I'm less sure about how good I think it was. Um, because I don't think there's much above the kind of three and a half... I think there's quite a few uh, matches ha- hovering around that kind of three-star level, um, or maybe even two and a half, which is probably better than most shows, but I don't know. What did you think overall? Um, I mean, I, I thought the middle portion kind of drug. Uh, I, I do like the main event a good bit, and I like the opening two matches, but the middle portion kind of drug for me. Um, I still would call it a good show, but not a great show. Yeah, well, where do you go on that, Scott? Uh, I uh, I actually graded this this show uh, as you as you see on our message board we we grade our our shows letter grade I I gave it a C plus Justin actually gave it a B plus so he liked the show a lot more than I did but yeah some of those early under the early card matches were just not very good um this ma- this show was totally weighted by the uh, uh by the the last two matches the ta- the the, the six man tag or the tag match. With Dusty and Sting against the Road Warriors, and this match here, Flair and, and Luger. Um, a quick comment though about the about the booking thing. I think a lot of it, uh, and I know we went on to it a, a long time, so I'll, I'll be brief. I think a lot of it is the 
Southern mentality of a fan um, in the older days. Obviously, Chad, you're a little younger. so. Um, but I think in the 80s, I think people left the arena going, oh, man, Flair, I put on a hell of a match. But, man, Luger just couldn't get the job done. But, man, that was a hell of a match. Whereas in the WWF, if Hogan won, was, yay, Hogan won, even though he has five moves. The philosophy between Northern wrestling fan and Southern wrestling fan is very different because of that. And Flair's just one of a kind. That's just the kind of guy he was. He was able to, you could like him and hate him at the same time. How many guys How many guys in the history of wrestling can pull that off? I think you can like him and hate him at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and there's not many that can do that. Uh, uh, so uh, in that aspect, I think it's also the philosophy of the wrestling fan from the North compared to the South, in my opinion. But it's also what you've been given, too. Uh, again, Vince's philosophy was always, good guy always wins last match. You want to go home happy. We want smiles on our faces at Madison Square Garden. But at the Omni, or at the Scope, or at the Greensboro Coliseum, it's we want a bunch of great matches regardless of who wins. So that's the philosophy there. Um, and I think this show was kind of indicative of that. Uh, you had a lot of matches where you thought the babyface should go over, like Ivan Koloff, and he didn't. The problem there was the match wasn't good anyway. But, uh, but the philosophy was there that you know we want to put on the great match regardless of who won. But in this case, you kind of wanted to take the Northern philosophy and have maybe the good guys win a little bit more. Um, the last match is great. Not as good as, I agree with you, Chad, not as good as it was when they rematched a couple years later, because as I mentioned earlier, I think Flair, uh, Luger's philosophy changed and his maturity level went up. But this is a match, this is a show that I would put in. Like, there's a lot of shows I just wouldn't put in if I didn't feel like it. This isn't one of them, though. I would actually like this match. I could put, uh, this show. I could put this show in any time and be like, oh, Starkey 88, pretty cool. And I'd leave it on. That's <laughs> great, a great show. If it's something I could just throw in when I have nothing else to watch. When you say throw in there, are you talking about a VHS player? <laughs> yes, because I don't, <laughs> I don't know if we can find Star Kid 88 on a Blu-ray. <laughs> uh, all right, well, just before we uh, finish up here, I, I, uh, I neglected to mention the Meltzer star ratings. He's pretty high on this show. Um, the very first match, uh, Fantastics versus um, um, Williams and Sullivan, he gave three and a half. Uh, any reaction to that, Chad? Just go higher uh, or lower. Seems a little high, but not too high for me. Um, it, and Scott, yeah, you can say higher or lower as well. Would you go higher? Oh, than? oh much too high for me. <laughs> much too high for me, yeah. <laughs> um, then we got the Midnights versus the Midnights. Three and a quarter, he gives. Maybe a tad high. Scott? Uh, yeah. yeah, a little bit high for me too. Then we get Russian Assassins versus Jones and, uh, sorry, versus Koloff and uh, Junk Food Dog, as he calls him. One and a uh, half star. Uh, that seems okay. <laughs> That's actually right on with what I had. Then we get Steiner versus Rotunda. He gives that three and a half. Uh, that would be high for me. Justin actually gave that. Uh, that. That was his exact rating. Mine was much lower. So. Yeah, it seems a little bit high for me as well. Uh, Wyndham versus uh, Bigelow, three and three quarters. That again seems really high for me. That's about ju what Justin had. He had three and a half. I had two and a half, so mine's slightly lower. But I could bump it up if I watch it again. I could bump it up if I watch it again. Yeah, I'd probably go a two there. I wasn't very impressed with that match. And then the main event, as we said, it goes four and a half. Um, and he he actually mentions this match easily beats out the Lawler versus Kerry Von Erich match as the best pay-per-view event of the year. Uh, 
actually, if Wyndham's match was uh, had a better finish, it would have topped Lawler versus Kerry as well. So this is um, this is actually uh, Meltzer's pay-per-view match of the year for 1998. Um, so that's very high praise from him. Uh, and did I mention the Rhodes versus uh, Sting and uh, the no. Rhodes no, no. versus Sting and Rhodes uh, two and three quarters? Okay, that. that seems pretty good to me. Yeah, yeah. mine's slightly lower. Justin has it about the same. So yeah, that's about right. Yeah. yeah um, and uh, well, uh, he's very high on the show, as you can imagine. He, uh, mm. But Meltzer does say the last time that the NWA put on a mega show like this one was March the twenty seventh. And they managed to ride on that momentum for nearly 10 days before going into their normal pattern of self-destruction. <laughs> this was the first example of a new era for the NWA. It's a very positive step. When you look at the bookings for January um, and the organization, nobody seems to have a clue as to what is on top for Clash of the Champions on February 15th from Cleveland or from the uh, Chicago pay-per-view uh, future events. The conclusion, once again, is like it is with the first Clash show. Um, and the second night of the Crockett Cup in this show. The workers here, for the most part, are so good. That when matched up right and motivated, they can put on incredible house shows, but they still come on a hit-and-miss basis. So he not a particularly uh, bright uh, prediction for the future there, um, but uh, I don't think that Meltzer knows uh, that Steamboat is actually signed, or that he's on oh. his way. Probably not, because I wouldn't be that downtrodden if I knew that Steamboat was coming in. No. Particularly, and also, I don't think anybody really knew yet. Unless, well, you said it earlier about the new committee uh, yeah. with Rhodes leaving. So, uh, yeah, I, I, Meltzer definitely must not have known Steamboat was coming, because if Flair was the head booker and he knew Steamboat was coming in, then everybody should get excited. Yeah. Uh, so that probably was uh, Steamboat was definitely a well-kept secret from a lot of people. So, so let's go for our match, uh, our um, end-of-show awards. And if you don't know, Scott, we have a MVP. Match of the night, and then we go for our uh, Billy Graham Award, which is um, the award for the worst worker on the night. So we'll just go through these in turn. Uh, match of the night for you, Scott. Oh, easily the main event. Uh, as much as I, I, you know, I dig into Luger, he did let Flair dictate the formula, and easily the best match of the night. Chad, are you going to disagree with that? Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's three for three. Um, and uh, I, I, I will predict that Justin would go the same way if he's. Yes, uh, yes, because we actually have a we have our awards at the bottom of our we have similar awards that you guys do for the end of shows and based on our and I'm just going right off our our column. So what we both have is pretty much unanimous. So what I what I'm going to give you is pretty much what we both have. So all right, all right, make it easy. So well, MVP, uh, Chad, I'll let you go here. I'm gonna pick a flare. For the MVP, I thought he was really good in that match, given a lot of uh, a lot of work to Luger, and then when he took over on offense, he was incredible and vicious. So, Flair's my MVP for this show. You going to disagree with that, Scott? Absolutely not. I agree. <laughs> Luger, both I, we have we have Flair and Luger, both of them. Because I got to give you again, we, as much as I was just digging into him, I'll give Luger props that uh, he did let Flair dictate the formula, and and that always made the matches great. So, uh, I I agree with you on Flair. Uh, but I also uh, I will also put uh, Luger in there as well. Yeah, and I will also go with Ric Flair. And I, I thought, uh, like you said, Chad, he he did a few things that we don't usually see from him: the, the flying forearm and the double stomp, uh, which was nice to see. But he also like um, it, it's easy to forget he he was flinging himself around that ring like a pinball for uh, for Luger in that match. Um, made him look like a million dollars. 
um, the, the, the moment where he uh, does that flying forearm and basically bounces off him um, was a was a great visual I thought and then when he switches gears and turns up the intensity um, I really like it when Flair does that and he doesn't do it every match he, d he did it in the uh, Jimmy Garvin match that we saw it always sticks out in my mind and he did it again here um, I, I like it when Flair goes slightly desperate you know towards the end of a match um, so yes and uh, finally the Billy Graham award and uh, Chad I'll go to you first again um, I may kind of controversially pick Mike Rotunda. Um, I just think he didn't bring a ton to their match, um, and uh, that match was really put into a big uh, position on this card, and I just thought, like, as far as most disappointing performer on the show, uh, it was him, so I'm going to go with him. Yeah, it was oddly featured, that particular match, wasn't it? Like, there was a lot of promos and... Uh, screen time given to that feud. Um, you're right. He didn't. He, it's not like he he didn't really rise to the occasion. I think you're right. Uh, Scott, who who's your Billy Graham uh, Award winner here? Yeah, Justin's in my Billy Graham Award uh, goes to uh, Ivan Koloff and the Junkyard Dog with a runner-up to the Fantastics. But we'll stick with Koloff and Junkyard Dog, probably because the match didn't end the way we wanted it to, and Junkyard Dog just is. I, I I've we've. We've stolen uh, sometimes on our show um, Meltzer's name of the junk food dog because it's just you could tell he's just he's just busting out of his tights, going through the motions, getting a paycheck. Uh, very disappointing for a guy who, when you're for a guy my, kid my age growing up, the junkyard dog was one of my heroes, and uh, and to see what he turned into, it's just a shame. So definitely my superstar Billy Graham award goes to. Uh, tie between Ivan Koloff and the Junkyard Dog. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, one thing about uh, JYD is that he, he's got a rather large rear end, and then he's got thump written... <laughs> he's got thump written across his arse. Uh, yes, he, yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you could bounce a, a, a load of snacks off, and it'll go right back into his mouth. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> he gives that Nicki Minaj a run for her money. Uh, uh, and my Billy Graham Award winner is actually... Um, Kevin Sullivan. I thought he really brought that match down. I thought, I mean, uh, mm. Steve Williams. Uh, I've been down on him, but he, as you, as we, as you said, was probably the best uh, person in that match. I thought Sullivan was just very sloppy in that uh, match, and I. Every time he hit the ring, um, that match lead, seemed to lose something. It could have been a lot better because I, I quite like the Fantastics. You, you, you put them there as the runners-up, uh, uh, Scott. Um, any reason that you that you were down on the Fantastics in that match? I think they just... They could have helped the match a little bit more, and they seemed just not to. And uh, the crowd, I have to say, didn't help them either uh, because they didn't get as much of a, of a real good face heat to help the match along. Um, uh, I think maybe they weren't booked to... Maybe they shouldn't have been U.S. champions if they weren't going to get the good face pop that they should have. But um, we, Justin and I both thought they just didn't bring the goods like they should have. In that match to kind of build up the uh, uh, build up the the heat for it. Yeah, I I just wonder whether by late eighty eight, early eighty nine, that that style of kind of uh, I, I I don't know what you'd call them blowjob, babyface kind of te <laughs> teen teen heartthrob uh, yeah team has kind of gone out of fashion now. You know, the moment has passed, the cultural moment has passed for it. Right, I agree. Um, which is why uh, maybe the crowds were down on them now. Kind of 
Um, I got the impression that the writing was on the wall for the Fantastics, and they mm-hmm. they didn't uh, give it their all in that match. Later on that evening, Justin did send me a sound clip of his picks for the End of Show Awards. All right, guys. Sorry I had to duck away. Uh, I hope I made it back just in time for the end here. But I will say my favorite match of the night probably leads into my MVP. The MVP would have to be Rick Steiner really capitalizing on that feud that has been so well built and the pop he received. And I'm going with that for my match of the night as well. It may not have been the best uh, technically wrestled match, but I thought the, the build, the storyline, and the payoff all culminated so perfectly with that one. Superstar Billy Graham! Uh, the Graham Award goes to... I want to say Dusty because he was on his way out and you know it didn't look that great and he kind of got buried here. But I'll go with I'll go with the Russian assassins and JYD taken away from Koloff spotlight. Another feud that deserved a better finish. So those would be uh, my awards there. All right. Well, uh, I I think uh, we've come to the end here. We've come all the way to the end of 1988 and to the end of the show. So thanks a lot to Scott and Justin. Uh, it was fun having you guys on. Oh, it's been an absolute treat. Thank you, guys. And uh, we definitely will try to reciprocate in the future and have you guys on our show. Uh, of course, we'll have to adjust as well because uh, the time we usually record, uh, Parv, you're probably out cold. <laughs> I think it's usually like 4 o'clock in the morning your time. So uh, we'll definitely try and work something out where we definitely want you guys on. Maybe you can join us for one of our vaults uh, or maybe just a, a general uh, rap session. We do that a lot as well. Uh, Justin does thank you as well. He apologizes. Uh, but uh, it was definitely a blast today. And... Uh, Look, you guys know me. If, if you listen to our shows, you know that I could talk about Ric Flair for for hours and hours. So <laughs> it was an honor to be able to come on and talk to you about my favorite guy of all time. So uh, thank you again. And we'll definitely we'll definitely have you guys on our show, The Place to Be, at podbean.com. You can find our show. And uh, definitely for all you listeners that may not know uh, us that well, uh, Parv and Chad are awesome. Uh, you can join. You can hop on our message board, Bigelow34.proboards.com as well. We we welcome everyone and anyone. Doesn't matter what country you're from. We got some Scots, some Brits, everybody all over the place. So uh, thank you again, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Scott. Right. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. All right, and, uh, and see you guys again. All right. See you, Parv. Talk to you later, Scott. Nice talking to you. You guys as well. See you guys. Good luck. Have a great weekend. Fans, for all of us here at WCW Center Stage, for Cowboy Bill Watts and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, I'm Jim Ross saying good night, everybody.